I'd like you to hurry over in your Bible, if you would, to Acts chapter 16 this morning. Acts chapter 16. I'd like to meet you there in verse number 12. Acts chapter 16, verse number 12. We have a lengthy passage that we want to read this morning to set the scene for the message this morning. Our text will be from verse 12 to the end of the chapter in verse number 40. So Acts chapter 16, verses 12 through 40. And this morning, with God's help, I'd like to speak to you about God's good work. The work of God is truly a good thing. And we know that God had led Paul and his ministry team to the city of Philippi. So we would expect that if God led them there, God would work. But the question is, how would that look? And how would we know that God was at work? Now, as we read the text in Acts 16, beginning in verse 12, I want you to do your best to mark down in your mind the different people or groups of people in whose lives God is at work. And we'll come back and we'll review that in just a moment by way of introduction to our message. Acts chapter 16, verse 12 And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God Heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, And the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly... There was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. 
And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house." And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this, saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily. But let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed." So how is your tally for those in whose lives God worked? This is what I have. Maybe you noticed a few details that I missed, but these are the ones that I marked down. We see, first of all, that God worked in the life of a woman named Lydia. Lydia was a successful businesswoman. She evidently had a business selling garments. And she was evidently well-to-do, fairly wealthy because of her business. She was also a woman who was devout. And she worshipped God on the Sabbath day with other people that wanted to know the truth. And so they, evidently, there was no synagogue in Philippi. And so they would meet out by the river to pray. And it seems that when she heard the message that Paul was preaching... She responded to it with eagerness, and her life was changed, and not only was she saved, but many in her household were also saved, and this woman Lydia becomes, in reality, the first convert on the continent of Europe to the cause of Christ. I saw also that there was a demon-possessed girl, and this demon-possessed girl had this spirit, this evil spirit within her. The scripture tells us that this spirit enabled her to soothe, say. We would equate this today with maybe reading palms or telling fortunes or reading tarot cards or a horoscope or something like that. She had some kind of spiritual power which gave her the ability to speak to people in a way And people would pay for her services, for her spiritual knowledge that she could share with them. Only she didn't get the money. The men who owned her took that and they used her. And so this woman 
was following. Did you see how it said in the passage? She was following after Paul and Silas while they were trying to minister. And she kept making this statement over and over again. These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And you might say, well, that seems like a good message. Seems like she's saying something that's true. I rather think because of Paul's response that this was said in a mocking way and that in some way it was causing a distraction or a deterrent to other people hearing the gospel, which is why Paul responded in the way that he did and he commanded that evil spirit to leave her. What we don't know is what happened to this girl after that. After the evil spirit left her, she was no longer of any use to her masters, and we don't know whether after that point she responded to the gospel or what took place in her life. The Bible simply does not tell. But would you agree with me that God clearly worked in her life by delivering her from that evil spirit? I see also in my tally that there were some men who owned this girl. She was their slave, and they used her for their own financial profit. And I want to stop and say right now, there are still evil men in the world who use women and young girls to their own advantage to gain a profit. And if those men don't repent, they will face the judgment of God. That is an evil and wicked and horrible sin that exists in our world It's existed for a long time. In this case, they were not using this woman's body in the sense of her attractiveness like men often use women and girls today, but rather they were using her as a vessel for this evil spirit. And do you see their response when God delivered this woman from the evil spirit through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, these men became so angry. Now, you notice that they saw the power of God on display. They saw God deliver this girl from this evil spirit, but their response was not one of repentance or of getting right with God. Their response was one of becoming angry, and they dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace, to the area where the magistrates were there in the city, and they demanded that they be judged for their crime, for They had lost their business, their means of income. There are some means of income which should be taken away from people. And these men were being judged by God, but they did not appreciate it. So I see that God was dealing with them. They didn't respond too good to it. The magistrates also were being dealt with by God. And here, they have these men brought to them. The situation is put before their feet. They have to make a decision. You can see in the passage in verse 22, the multitude, the people in the city are all stirred up and angry and upset at Paul and Silas. And so these magistrates feel like we've got to do something in response to this. And their response was to take Paul and Silas, to tear their clothes off of their body, to provide for them to be beaten with whips and then to throw them into the jail. Now, no doubt, in the midst of all of this, the magistrates became aware of some of the spiritual power that these men evidenced and what God was doing through them. And I believe that God was working in these magistrates' life, but again, they didn't really respond very well to that working. 
Then, at least, we see one more uh, group of people, a person, a primary person and a group that was attached to him that God was dealing in his life, and that is the jailer. And the jailer, of course, was kind of an innocent party to all of this. He was simply the one who kept the jail. These men were delivered to him. He was told they were criminals. They had done some kind of crime against the city and the Roman law, and so he received them into the jail. The Bible says that when he received Paul and Silas, he made them fast. That means he shackled them into place and put them where they would be safe until the morning, and he was just doing his job. But of course, his job was interrupted in the middle of the night as God delivered Paul and Silas and all the other prisoners from jail, and this man was nearly ready to take his life. You say, why would he do that? Because under Roman law, if he had allowed those prisoners to escape, he would have been tortured and then killed, and he believed it would be better just to end his life right there. His job was over. His life was in jeopardy. He was ready to take his own life, and Paul called out to him, Sir, do thyself no harm. We are all here. And the jailer was so curious about what happened that he came in, and he spoke to Paul and Silas, And he asked them some questions. Verse 30, his primary question was, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Would you say God was working in his life? The Bible tells us that this man believed on Jesus Christ. His family received this same message and they heard the gospel and they were saved. And then this jailer and his household, they were all baptized. And he ministered to Paul and Silas and Then in the morning, God provided for them to be set free. So we have all these people in whose lives God is working. Of course, there's also the general people in town who are observing all of this and seeing these things happen, and God is using this in their lives. Now, what I want to talk about this morning with this as a backdrop is about this thought, how does God work? How did God work in Philippi, and how does God work in our world today? What would we look for to know that God is working, and what are some principles that are universal that we would say these things are true about the way that God works in the world? And so I have for you six thoughts from this passage this morning about the good work of God. The first thought that I want to share with you is this. No work can happen apart from God's working. This much is clear in this passage that God is the one who is doing the work. Now, Paul and Silas are privileged to be a part of this work, to be the messengers who are coming declaring the gospel. But even that, God has to take that message and work in the person's heart for them to be at all open to the gospel. And we see indications of this in the passage. Notice, for instance, that it says about Lydia in verse 14 that she heard us whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. God opened her heart and she was able to understand the gospel and the gospel made a difference in her life. Now, let none of us make the mistake this morning of thinking that we are the secret to God's working. 
Some people think if I could just learn better arguments, if I could get better people skills, if I could get a smoother presentation, if I could get more skilled at finding verses, then surely more people would get saved. And I'm not discouraging you from preparing yourself to be a vessel that God can use, but I do want to point out that it is not our ability or our power that does the work. It is God who does the work through us. And that is clear in this passage. It's clear in the life of the jailer as well. You know, the spiritual truth is this. Men's eyes are blinded and their hearts are deceived. And you and I, as ambassadors of Christ, are completely dependent upon the Lord to convict and reveal the truth to men's hearts. Jesus Christ told us in the Gospel of John that it is the Spirit who convicts men of sin and righteousness and judgment. He uses the Word of God, and He often uses the man of God, but the Spirit of God must do that work to convict. To convict means to convince or to assure that it is so, and the Spirit does that work in the heart of an individual. He does that through the Word of God. The work of conviction and conversion belongs to the Holy Spirit of God, and He uses us as messengers of truth. Isn't it a blessing to be a part of what God is doing, but never forget that without Him, we can do nothing, nothing at all. So we must understand and recognize this morning that if we hope to see God's work, if we hope to be a part of God's work, it is His work, not our work. And this is a humbling thing for us to recognize. So we see right away no work can happen apart from God's working. This means that when we go and we're trying to do God's work, that we should be talking to the Lord about what He's doing. And we should be asking Him to work and expecting Him to work. And we should be seeking to be the kind of vessels that He can work through. A second thought about God's good work in this passage is this, and we see it in verse 15, God's working in one person usually leads to another. It's interesting the way that God works in people's lives. I, I said we would see this in verse 15. Notice it says there, and when she, this is Lydia, when she was baptized and her household she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. So I want to point out to you that here along the way, her household evidently had some interest as well in these spiritual things. Her, the members of her house, which would include perhaps people who worked for her, uh, extended family members. She was a wealthy woman, remember? So it's likely that she housed a good portion of her family with her in her home. And all of these people were interested in the gospel and they were curious about it. And this is the way it often works because when one person becomes interested in, in spiritual things and the word of God and the gospel, they often are talking to the people who are closest to them in their life. And then when they come to the place where they understand the truth, they usually can't help but talk about it with the people that are close to them and in their life. And a lot of times God has been working in those people's lives through what he's doing in that person's life. And 
Come to find out, a lot of times it seems that God works in this way through family units and friends. And I mean, think about in your own life how you came to know the Lord. And I would imagine for many of you that you could say, I got saved because God worked in this person's life and I knew them or they were part of my family and then that spilled over into my life. We see this in the jailer as well towards the end of the chapter. He was the one who initially heard the gospel and sprang in and asked, what must I do to be saved? But then he invited Paul and Silas to come to his home and evidently Paul and Silas preached the same message to the people in his home and they also responded to the message and they got saved and they were baptized. So we see that God tends to work in one person's life and then that usually leads to another. Now, this is an important thought because you and I should really be aware of this aspect of God's working. Listen, when God is working in one person's life, there is a good possibility that there is going to be a whole group of people, what we might call a circle of influence, that is attached to that person. And many of them might also have a curiosity, might have an openness to the gospel. And right when somebody first gets saved is usually the the most open time to minister to those people who have some curiosity. So as the Lord's servants, we ought to be aware of how God works and we ought to be asking God to lead us to these people who are seeking and anticipating that God might also be working in the lives of some other people. You know, what's happening here in Philippi is the beginning of a New Testament church. But it really just started with one woman who is seeking God. And God connected Paul and Silas with this one woman, Lydia, and then one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. And the next thing we know, there is a solid church that has been planted in the city of Philippi. So remember, God's working in one person usually leads to another. A third truth about God's good work that we see in this passage is this one. Satan will actively oppose the work of God. You can count this down as an absolute truth. If God is working, Satan will be opposing. Satan hates the work of God. He wants to distract. We know from the scriptures that he is a deceiver. He is a distractor. He is one who wants to close off the minds or the spiritual eyes of people so that they will not understand the truth. And as soon as God starts working, Satan starts getting busy trying to detract and distract and pull attention away because what does he want? Well, he wants the souls of men. He wants men to be condemned by their sin. He wants to deceive them to be contrary to the Lord. And he wants them to be brought into a place of judgment and condemnation. That's an awful thing. But we ought to be aware that this is happening. If you are engaged in the ministry, in in, in being involved in the work of God then you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's something that happens when God is at work in someone's life and all of a sudden things start happening, unexplained things, noises and distractions and cell phones and emergencies and this thing and that thing. And and what is going on? 
Well, a lot of times this is Satan trying to actively oppose the work of God. You say, come on, pastor. No, I'm serious. Look at this passage. As soon as Lydia and her household get saved, what happens? This girl who's possessed by a devil finds Paul and Silas. And she starts calling out in a way that is mocking and detracting from the message and is causing people to wonder. I I mean, think about this. If you have a demon-possessed girl saying, this is the way of truth over here, what are other people thinking? All right, this is a little weird. Maybe I'm staying away from those guys. I'm wondering if they're associated with her. What's happening here? So he's trying to distract. He's trying to discourage potential hearers from coming into contact with the truth. Satan takes people captive at his will to prevent them from hearing the truth. We know this. The scripture tells us this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. And as the ministers of God, this is frustrating to us, but it should never surprise us that when God is working, Satan is going to be opposing the work of God. Didn't God tell us to expect this? So why are we surprised when this sort of thing happens? Even today, Satan seeks to blind men to the knowledge of the truth, to keep them from coming to Christ. Are you aware of his devices and how he does this? You might, if you have a chance, study the parable of the sower in the Gospels, and you might receive some information and some help about some of the devices of Satan that he uses to distract and to blind men from the truth. But I'm telling you, he has a lot of devices. He's very good at what he does, and he's able to tailor-make his approach to the individual. He's not omnipotent or omniscient, but he is a powerful creature, and he probably knows more about you than you think he does through observation. He's probably got more information in his file that he keeps on you than you would like to imagine And he's not bashful about using that against you. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, I wish you could understand the spiritual struggle that is going on right now for your soul. And God wants you to come to him. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But Satan wants to keep you in his grasp. And he's willing to go to great lengths to try to keep you as part of his kingdom. So beware, because Satan will actively oppose the work of God. We expect it. We anticipate that he'll do this. A fourth principle here from Acts 16 about God's good work is seen in verses 19 and 20. And that is this truth. Some who are present and aware of God's working will refuse it. Now, I want you to understand that not everyone that is a party to God's working, that is, that God is at work in their life, is going to automatically yield to the Lord. In fact, the Bible is very clear that you do have a choice in this matter. You do have something to say about God's work in your life. 
These men who are described in verses 19 and 20, they had seen the undeniable work of God. They saw an evil spirit cast out of this girl that they were using for their own profit. And they knew that the power of God was real. But what did they do? Did they respond with repentance and say, we've been wrong all this time and we need this truth for ourselves? No, they didn't. Instead, they were offended by the message. And why were they offended by the message? Because, it says verse 19, the hope of their gains was gone. Do you know what kept them from receiving the message? It was the sin of covetousness. They said, if, if we believe this message, then we have to yield to what God has done in this girl's life. And God took our money. He took our hope of gain. We were making a lot of money off of this girl and God ruined it. So they decided they were going to oppose the work of God. Do you know there are many people today who will oppose the work of God because of covetousness? Because they say, if I yield to the gospel and I obey the gospel, I'm going to lose everything that I've worked for. I don't want to give that up. Can I ask you a serious question this morning? What do you hope to do with all of that stuff after you die? What exactly is going to happen if you sell your soul? What have you gained if you have lost your soul? These men, in a very real sense, seem to have sold their soul. They were willing to go to any lengths to get money for themselves even rejecting the message. Now, the magistrates also are a good example of this because obviously they would have heard about what God was doing and how God was working, but they were not at all interested in yielding to that. And you say, what was their motivation? Was it covetousness? No, I would propose to you, though the scripture doesn't explicitly say, I fear that the reason that they responded the way they did was because of the fear of man and because of the pride of life. They had a position in that town to maintain. They were afraid of what everyone would think, and they would rather put these men in jail than have to deal with the angry mob. And you know, again, I want to point out to you, many people refuse the gospel message because they are simply afraid of what everyone will think. What will my friends do if I get saved? What will they think of me if I start to follow Christ that nobody's going to like me anymore? And so they say, I don't want anything to do with the gospel. I don't want to come to Christ. It's heartbreaking to see men respond with hardness and rejection of the gospel, but it happens over and over again. I've had people at times in my life take gospel literature that I handed to them and take it just like this in my face and say, this is what I think of what you're saying. And throw it at me. As if that would negate the message. Why do they respond that way? Well, usually because there's some deep-seated sin that they don't want to surrender to the Lord. I couldn't be a judge of exactly what's going on in their heart, but I certainly have been a witness to many people responding violently against the message of the gospel. Don't be surprised when this happens. 
Don't become discouraged from the work when this happens. And this leads us to the fifth thought in verses 23 and 24. And we'll probably expand on this a little bit more in our message next week. So I don't want to dwell a lot on the details, but I want to make one comment about verses 23 and 24. And it's this principle of God's good working. God working through a person may lead them into difficult circumstances. It's undeniable that God is working through Paul and Silas. He's clearly doing his work in them and through them in other people's lives. But notice that his work in them led them to a very difficult place. They were brought before the magistrates. Their clothes were stripped off of them. Some Roman soldiers took whips and they began to beat these men. This was not a gentle, uh, a, a gentle correction. This was intended to punish, to bring pain. And I would suggest to you that the stripes that were left on their back caused them pain for many years to come. The scars that were inscribed upon them because of what? Because they preached the gospel, because God worked through them. They were thrown into jail. They were shackled in place in that dungeon. They were left there. These were difficult circumstances. Sometimes we have this idea. If I'm faithful to the Lord and I follow God's will and I faithfully preach the gospel, God's going to make everything good in my life. In fact, in my social media feed this morning, I saw a few quotes from a health and prosperity gospel type of preacher who said, listen, God is going to make everything good for you. That's not Bible. That's, that's contrary. You know, I mean, eventually it's going to work together for good. But in the interim here, there could be some really difficult circumstances. And if we think, oh... I've been faithful to the Lord. Why is he doing this to me? This isn't fair. I don't like how God is treating me. We've got the wrong expectation. We're looking for something that God hasn't promised. In fact, God has actually promised us that if we're faithful to him, it's very likely, nearly certain, that we will suffer persecution. That doesn't sound pleasant. That we're going to have difficulties and trials and and problems in our life. Now many of us in Paul and Silas's condition would be tempted to sorrow and to regret the, the circumstances thinking the work of the Lord has now ended. It's all over. The story is up. I don't even know if we're going to get out of here. Maybe we would be sitting in that dungeon attached to the wall thinking, oh, I wish I just hadn't cast a demon out of that girl. Why did I have to go and make a scene? Maybe I should have been a little more uh, understanding and quieter of their, their, the, the way that they do things. I mean, we would have been second guessing. Wouldn't you have been second guessing? I would have been. But Paul and Silas were not fooled by what was going on. You see, they seem to recognize that hardship is an expected part of serving the Lord. You and I would do well to believe and own the same truth. Now, I know in our minds, we know that there could be hardship. 
That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the way that we respond when the hardship comes. And we act as if, I can't believe this is happening. Why are we so surprised? Okay, so God is working. And in this case, God not only allowed this difficult circumstance in their life, but he's actually going to use this difficult circumstance to continue the work of God. And that brings us to the sixth and final thought this morning. Difficult circumstances do not mean that God has finished working. Sometimes when we're going through a time of trial or difficulty, we're praying, God, get me out of this trial so that you can work. Except, what if the work God wants to do is in the trial? What if you're asking him to get you out of the trial, but he needs you in the trial to do what he wants to do? In this case, it was imperative that Paul and Silas would be in prison. It was imperative that they would be delivered miraculously from their bonds in that prison because God knew that there was a man in that jail who was listening to all the singing and praising and preaching that was going on, and his response when he realized they had not escaped was to call for a light and spring into that jail and say, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This man had a work going on in his heart, and who could imagine that God would work in the heart of a Roman jailer? But see, this is the work of God. You and I think that we can dictate and draw out the way that God is going to work. We're so foolish to think that we can read the crowd and figure out whose heart God is working in. We walk into a situation and we're like, I see three people where God is probably working. You're probably completely wrong. You got the wrong people. The person that you think is off limits and no way God is doing anything is probably the one where God is working in his heart. So don't be so quick to think that you figured out God's work. Our job is simply to yield to him, to be cooperative with him and what he's doing. All Paul and Silas had to do was yield to the Lord and just go along with what God was doing. It was going to cost them something. It was going to be painful. But what a harvest. At the end of Acts 16, there's a man who gets saved. His entire house believes on Jesus Christ. The beginnings of a church is birthed. And we see that God is at work in ways that you and I could scarcely understand. It is often in times of great trial that God works through us and in us to bring others to the knowledge of the truth. The sad thing is that so often in our time of trial, we are so focused on our pain and on the fact that we don't like the trial, that we are missing what God is doing right there in our own life and in the life of people around us. Again, we'll deal with that a little more in detail in our message next week. But I do want to point out to you that we must be so careful 
not to lose our perspective in times of difficulty because difficult circumstances do not mean that God has finished working. Now, as you think about these six truths about these people that God was working in their life, can you look in your own life and see how God worked in the past in your life? Can you identify any of these principles in the way that God worked in your life? Can you say, I I see some of these things. Okay, so if you can do that, doesn't that give you hope that the God who worked in your life in the past is still working today? That he's still working in the same way and that we could expect that God who has worked is working and will work And hold the presses. He is inviting you and I to be a part of that work. What a privilege. What a joy to know that God is working and that we can be a part of that. And this morning, I want to admonish you. I want to encourage you. Talk to God about his good work. And ask him if you couldn't be a part of that good work. But now this morning, I also want to challenge you. Because some are in this room who are more like the magistrates and the men who own that little girl. And I want to challenge you this morning that there is a need for you to repent. There is a need for you to stop hardening your heart against the truth. You may be sitting here saying, I don't believe that God is at work in my life. I'll bet if you took a closer look, you'd see that he is. I imagine that he's calling to you and convicting you and drawing you to himself, but there's a need for you to respond with obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you have been putting him off for a long time and assuming that you'll have another opportunity, but I want to challenge you this morning. If God is working, respond to what he's doing in your life today yield to him. Be more like Lydia and the jailer than like these evil men and those magistrates who shut off the work of God in their life. Indeed, God is working. There's an opportunity for us to be a part of that work. And praise God, that work all centers around the good gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that you and I cannot save ourselves, we cannot forgive ourselves of our sins, we cannot make ourselves right with God, and God knows that. And because of our inability to save ourselves, God the Father sent God the Son to become a man, to go willingly to the cross, on the cross as he hung there, being physically punished for crimes he did not do, he also suffered. He suffered for your sins and mine, the rejection of God the Father. Can you imagine such a thing? He took upon himself the sins of the world, and he did it so that we could be forgiven. In fact, he prayed to his Father, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. It was because of his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, that I can be forgiven. 
and you can be forgiven. But there's more. He died on that cross and they put his body in the ground. And for three days and three nights, the Roman authorities thought that they had won. And the Jewish authorities thought that they had been triumphant over Jesus. And the devil thought he won the battle. But guess what? On Sunday morning, Jesus came right out of that tomb. And he reminded us that the good work of God will always prevail. God's power is so much greater than the power of Satan. He has resurrection power. And his power proves to us that his promises are true. This morning, the good work of God centers around the message that if we will believe on Jesus Christ, turning from our sins, we can be saved by the resurrection power of Jesus. And I want to say to you today, that salvation is available even now. It is offered to you through the person of Jesus Christ if you will only come to him. And many of you are saying amen, which I assume means that you've come to Christ. And if you have, what a glorious task we have to go to a world that needs this message and tell them there is salvation through Jesus Christ and see God work in their lives. Indeed, God's work is good. And my question for you is, are you a part of what God is doing